Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a few verses in Titus, so I invite you to turn to Titus chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, if you do not have a copy of the Scriptures, please put up your hand and an usher will bring you uh, a copy of the Bible. So um, I see a, hand, a couple of hands here in the middle. Um, are there any others? And up front. Thank you. As we turn to Titus in the New Testament, I want to ask you a question. What is a flourishing life? Let me, let me rephrase that. Uh, what is the blessed life? You know, where I live in South Africa, in Johannesburg, and I think I can speak for most of sub-Saharan Africa, the blessed life in a pulpit generally is defined as a life with lots of shiny things, uh, a life uh, marked by worldly success and fame and comfort. Now, I think most of us, I would assume, most of us know that's not how the Bible describes a blessed life, a flourishing life. So let's put it aside. So how would you define a flourishing life? What are the ingredients, as you know the Scriptures and the doctrines of the Bible, how would you describe, perhaps to your six, seven, eight-year-old, a blessed life? It's a really important question because the Bible makes much of God blessing His people. Jesus opens his famous Sermon on the Mount with which words? Blessed. Blessed. Happy. Here is flourishing life. Well, these questions and related ones we bring to the text of Titus. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 is our passage. I invite you to turn there. We'll focus most of our time looking at these first few verses in Titus, but we're going to do something of a survey of the whole book. It's really short. Um, and if you are looking for something to uh, uh, read in your personal devotion, perhaps you'll consider Titus after this morning's uh, study. Before I even read these first few verses from Titus, uh, let me pray and ask God for his help. Do pray with me again. Father, we do uh, want to acknowledge again this morning that we are unworthy of any good thing from you. Uh, I acknowledge I am unworthy to preach your word. We are all unworthy to hear your word of blessing. But we do come to you boldly this morning because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is an all-sufficient savior for sinners. So we ask for your blessing this morning on your word. I keep my mouth from error. We pray that your word would come to us as it is, that which gives life. And we pray that we would leave this place knowing we met not only with each other, that we heard not only the voice of a man, but we have met with the risen Christ himself. We ask this all in his precious name. Amen. So please follow with me as I read just first few verses here in Titus chapter 1. Paul, servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus my true child in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Just so far in 
God's word for now. Before we dive in, I'm going to just tell you a little things, a few things about Titus. So the book of Titus, as you can see, is a short book. And with first and second Timothy, it is considered to be the pastoral epistles. A letter is written by Paul, uh, not to churches, as he wrote to many other uh, churches like Corinth and Ephesus. These three letters, first and second Timothy and Titus, were written to pastors, to Titus and to Timothy, written particularly to instruct them and guide them on leading and forming healthy, faithful churches. If you know anything about the Christian life, when we talk about the church, we are talking about our everyday Christian life. So there's much uh, uh, clear application to, to ordinary Christians uh, in, in, in our letter that we'll consider uh, this morning. One of the main reasons Paul wrote Titus, we find in verse 5. So we didn't read this, but drop your eye down to verse 5. Paul writes, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So one of the main reasons Paul wrote to Titus was to instruct him on the need and the way for him to install and raise up elders in the various congregations that would met on this island uh, called uh, Crete. That, however, is not the main reason Paul wrote this letter. Paul wrote this letter chiefly for the sake of faith. So go back to verse 1, Titus chapter 1. Paul writes, Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. If you read Titus, you'll observe that this word faith and a word that often is joined to it, soundness, runs throughout the letter. Paul writes chiefly, not that there would be elders, but more uh, importantly, that the uh, faith of the elect of God's people on that island in various churches would flourish. He writes for the sake of the faith. Just look there and also in verse 2, we see uh, um, a faith being mentioned uh, again. Verse 4, we read of our common faith. Uh, verse 13 in chapter uh, 1 as well, we uh, read of uh, uh, the work of the elders, that they be sound in the faith. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 2, uh, we read uh, again that older uh, men are to be self-controlled and other things. They are to be sound in faith. Verse 10, slaves are to be Showing all good faith. And if you go all the way down to chapter 3, verse 15, Paul ends his letter saying, All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Faith. This is what Paul's concerned about. And Paul's concerned that the faith of God's people here on Crete, on this island, flourish. I remind you of Jude. Jude chapter 2, 20. Uh, uh, says that we are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Peter would write to Christians facing persecution. And he would speak of faith how? He would say that faith is more precious than gold. Now, Christian, I wonder, as you sit here this morning, as you look back over your last week that you've come through, would you say that's how you view your faith? More precious than gold? Much of your life this last week uh, rightly be uh, framed around your pursuit of a flourishing faith. 
we're going to look uh, at faith and, and the things that nurture it. But before we do that, we must just uh, remind ourselves of the Bible's sort of framework to faith. Otherwise, it's going to be difficult for us to understand why Paul would write about faith. You know, where we live uh, uh, and where our church is situated, we used to have an ambulance service just right next door. And the ambulance would run or drive around the block past the church building very often while I was preaching. It's rather annoying. But I tell you what, if you're lying on the pavement somewhere and you hear the ambulance coming, it's, it's joy in that noise, isn't it? And the same goes for faith. If we don't understand the, the, the wider frame in the Bible, uh, we're not going to understand how faith is so precious. So before we dive into Titus, I want to remind you of some key things we must understand about the Scriptures. Number one, the Bible describes that this world is broken. This world is a mess. I'm sure I don't have to remind you of that. If you just stop and think about it, this world is a mess. You think of the bumps and bruises of your children from the playground. I think of how the allergies have attacked so many of us during this spring. And of course, we can think of far worse things, right? I'm sure that there are mothers here this morning who find a day like today difficult. Mother's Day. I think of one particular mother that I know who has lost her only son. I think of mothers back home in my congregation. Single mothers, mothers with uh, rebellious children. I think of one particular mother who has an estranged relationship with her child, her daughter, and also has a grown son who is in his 30s battling cancer. He is probably going to die in the next year. She knows this world is broken. I'm sure that many of you know that to be very, very true as well. The other thing we must realize is we just uh, understand and think about why faith is precious is not only because the world is broken, but because God is firmly committed to redeeming this world. That's the reason why we gather. Because in Christ we meet a God who is firmly committed to redeeming His world. From the early chapters of Genesis, we have hints of this. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. God hints very strongly of His intention to reverse the effects of the fall, to remove sin and all its traces from his people's experience. And there later on in Genesis uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we read very clearly of God's plan to redeem the world, even as he promises Abraham many, many good things. But look down at our text. Even in our passage here, we see of God's intention to redeem this world. In verse 2, we read of the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. God is committed to redeeming this world. The other thing we must remember is even as we hear of God redeeming this world is that we are actually undeserving of receiving his redemption. So God is in his full right to redeem a world. We are actually those who don't deserve to participate in this redemption. This is why the scriptures call us sinners. This is why we need a, a savior to make us right with God. This is why we pray in Jesus' name, because we have no right in and of ourselves to come before this God and even share in his redemption. And if you are here this morning feeling the weight of a broken world, I want to remind you that there is hope. Hope not because we are wise or because we are able or because there are uh, uh, clever people ruling the country. Not my country, at least. 
No, we, we have hope because there is a gracious Savior on the throne. We have hope because God Himself considered uh, uh, us to be those who He would love. Love to an extent that He would come in the flesh. This is the good news of the Bible, that, that God the eternal Son came into this world and put on flesh and lived the life that you should live but never will. And that life of perfect obedience took Jesus Christ, God the Son, to the cross where He would die in the place of all. All would recognize the brokenness of this world, recognize their own sin before a holy God, and put their trust in Him. This is why faith is precious. This is why Paul would write to Timothy, for the sake of the elect. Because when this brief life is over, I can assure you nothing will matter other than saving faith. You know, recently, I, we, we've, we've uh, had a young, not a young woman, she must be in her 60s, visit our church. She's dying of cancer. Late last year, I was, I, on a Friday afternoon, I was due to go out with my wife and some friends, but I felt such a burden for this woman, so I hadn't seen her for a while. So I phoned Lee, and I said, can I come see you, please? I went and saw Lee at our home, uh, not too far from where the church is located. She lives in a lovely home. Sprawling lawns, manicured gardens, a tennis court on site, views of the city of Johannesburg, and there she is dying of cancer. These things will mean nothing in the end. Her husband is not a believer. Friends, I can assure you that you may arrive at the throne of God with a pot of gold. It will mean nothing if you have not got saving faith. So Paul would write to Titus for the sake of of the faith of God's elect. Christian, you should realize that there are many good things that we run after in this world and pursue and pray for. I'm encouraged that you are studying how the Bible calls us to pursue lives of justice. That's good and right. But please make sure that on the last day, you have saving faith. Saving faith. Well, as we think about this passage this morning, I want to give you three questions that are going to help us just orientate ourselves around these four verses and help us look at the rest of Titus. Three questions. This is going to be our outline. Firstly, what is the source of a flourishing faith? What is the source of a flourishing faith? Number two, what is the shape of a flourishing faith? And thirdly, on what is a flourishing faith set? So you want three words. Source, shape, set. Okay? What is the source of a flourishing faith? Well, look here at uh, verse uh, 1 again. Paul says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Paul would write uh, of God's uh, people needing to uh, ground themselves in his word. Later on, even in our passage, he speaks there in verse uh, 3 of his word that at the proper time has been manifest through uh, the preaching. And throughout Titus, we read of the importance of teaching, of knowledge of God's word. Look there how he qualifies elders. Verse 9 of chapter 1. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. 
Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says to Titus that he must be able to teach what accords to sound doctrine. Older women, in verse 3 of chapter 2, they must too teach what is good. And you can read the rest of Titus. You'll see how Paul labors this point. You teach Titus, make sure they're people who can teach God's word, particularly qualified men. Why does Paul write that? Why does Paul emphasize teaching? Because it is teaching and God's word that causes faith to flourish. So that's why right in the beginning he will speak of not just faith, but the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So what is the source of our faith? It is God's word, particularly the word concerning Christ. If you're here this morning seeking after God, perhaps you've been coming here a few weeks or months, and God has begun to stir your heart, and you have a hunger for Him. Perhaps you've come to know Christians in your neighborhood, perhaps in your place of work, or in your family, and you want what they have. I would encourage you, seek God in His Word. That's where you'll find him. That's where he reveals himself, particularly in the word that became flesh, in that man, that God-man, Jesus Christ. Christian, this is, of course, a word to you. Your faith is only going to be nurtured to the extent that you expose your soul to God's word. Flourishing faith is a faith that is firmly planted in the soil of God's word. Sound faith is fed by sound teaching. If, if your faith was a plant, a garden plant, then it will flourish, all things being equal, in the soil of God's Word. That's why if you're looking for a church, this is a good church to join because they love God's Word. You hear it in the prayers. You hear it in the singing. And you hear it even as people now are attentive to God's Word. Do not give up meeting together, Christian, because it is good for your soul. Because here you're being exposed to God's Word. And when your elders, when they run after you and you've been missing for a couple of weeks, don't think they're just seeking to impress upon you your duty. They're doing that because they love you and because it's good for your soul. Because we are those who are so designed by God that we will flourish to the extent that we are exposed to his word. Now let's be honest, sometimes God's word is to us a thing that is boring. Even as Christians, we know something of the experience of coming to church, reading the scriptures, and finding God's word to be more bland than we would like. It's dry sometimes. And I would remind you that there's not the, the reason why it's like that is not because God's word is boring or dry. It's because there's something wrong with our hearts. You know, I, I do like to come to America for many reasons. One reason is because you guys do ice cream really well, right? We don't have very good ice cream. Lots of good things in, in, in South Africa, lots of good culinary delights, but we don't do ice cream very well. I do like myself a good pot of uh, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Um, I was hoping there'd be some service of that after the service this morning, but uh, Nick tells me that that's not, not the case. But, but you know that if you get yourself a, a, a tub of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and you have a head cold or you're battling sinusitis, the ice cream doesn't taste very good. 
And it's not the ice cream's fault, is it? No, there's something wrong with our taste buds. So Christian, if you're feeling this morning that God's word is to you something that is, is not as, as sweet and as wholesome and as delicious as the scriptures describe themselves to be, realize it's not the Bible's fault, it's, it's our hearts. And as you plow into the Bible, as you keep reading the scriptures and coming to church, let me encourage you to pray that God would make your taste buds alive again, cause you to delight in his word. So here's our first question answered. What is the source of our faith? It is nurtured by God's word. Number two, uh, how is it shaped? How is it shaped? Look there at verse one. Again, Paul writes of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Some translations say, which leads to godliness. And as you look at Titus, you'll find that Paul regularly refers and encourages Titus to remind the Christians there that their lives be shaped by godliness. In the opening chapter there, we read of elders are to be marked by godliness. Verse 8, hospitable, lovers of what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Titus in chapter 2 verse 7 is to be a model of good works. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And even chapter 3, verse 14, second last verse, he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works works. How do we know whether the tree of our faith is healthy? Check the fruit. Is there godliness growing on this tree? And we're not talking about perfection. We're not saying that Christians never fall into sin. But we are saying that a Christian tree is one that does have some fruit of godliness on it. There is some measure of sorrow after sin of a desire to grow, of progress, however slight and slow, in Christ-likeness. Let me read verse 14 of chapter 3 again. Look what it says. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Why? Because saving faith leads to godliness. Titus 1 verse 1. Now listen, if, you, if you're discouraged, perhaps even as I, I say those words, thinking about your own life, perhaps your past, Perhaps you're well aware that your past has not been marked by godliness. Perhaps you're a Christian this morning knowing that your life is not as godly as it should be. I want to remind you that the God that we find in the Scriptures is a God of grace. Look there in verse 4. He speaks of our common faith, and the first thing he says about our faith is that we meet a God who is marked by what? By grace and peace. And there is grace of the cross of Jesus even for our sins of neglecting godliness, of delving into those things which we know we should stay well away from. There is grace, Christian, for that. So you have reason to, to resolve even again this morning, even at the table, to pursue a life of Christ-likeness again. And praise God, He doesn't leave us alone in this world. He gives us His Holy Spirit 
who enables us, who empowers us, who strengthens us uh, to put sin to death and to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. Chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Perhaps you find the slaying of sin difficult. Well, let me encourage you to look to Lord Jesus Christ, who promises to teach us, to train us, to turn from sin and to pursue Him. Christian, let me remind you that this isn't an option. We can't have uh, uh, the Lord Jesus as our Savior and not as our Lord. Now, years ago, uh, uh, just uh, after I became the the senior pastor, the solo pastor of of our church, I have elders, but I was working with a senior pastor at the time when I arrived eight years ago, and then he retired and rolled off. And just as he went on sabbatical, me and the rest of the elders had to pursue a case of discipline which is never a pleasant thing to do as a church or as elders. Well, I remember very clearly this young man who had left his wife for no good reason and was involved romantically and perhaps otherwise with another woman. As the elders pursued him, as friends in the congregation pursued him and urged him to turn, he was relentless. One Monday morning, myself and another, another brother in the church met with this man uh, at a, a breakfast place uh, and sought one last time to try and encourage him to turn. I'm still haunted by his confidence, his false confidence. I said to this young man towards the end of the conversation, I said to him, brother, what are you going to do? We'll just call his name Benjamin. Benjamin, what are you going to do on the last day when you face the holy God who you'll have to give an account for this portion of your life? What are you going to say to him on the last day? And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, oh, don't worry. God understands. He is gracious. Don't worry about that. Friends, that's just not true. As gracious as God is, His grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness. His grace teaches us to pursue a life of purity and of holiness. Look there, chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16. They, he's speaking of false teachers, they pro to know God, but they deny Him by their works. You can claim to have faith. You can have a love for expository preaching. You can read Calvin and Grudem all you like. But if your life is marked, marked by unkindness, greed, indifference to others, particularly God's people, then I don't know if you're a Christian. Because the Scriptures are clear. There is a category of a professor of faith. Chapter 1, verse 16. But actually, they deny God by their works. Now, again, we're not saying that the Scriptures call us to a life of perfection, of sinlessness. But if you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your life is known by others to be no different from the ungodly people we live and work around, then you need to go back to the drawing board and question your faith and ask yourself, do you fall into this category? I remind you of those chilling words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 7. 
that on that last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, we, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he will say, what to them? He will say to them, away from me, for I never knew you. Saving faith is shaped by godliness. This fruit, this plant of faith that we want to establish and ground in God's word, it must bear fruit. Fruit that is marked by love and kindness and humility. Fruit that is marked by purity and self-control. Fruit that is concerned for the good of others and not just that of ourselves. Well, we rush on to our third point, our third question. We've considered uh, the a source of faith, the shape of a flourishing faith, finally, uh, on what is our faith set? And the answer is our future hope of eternal life. Here, even in the opening section, Paul speaks of, in verse 2, uh, the hope of eternal life. This uh, word eternal life is mentioned just twice in Titus. Interestingly, on the two occasions that Paul mentions eternal life, he links it to hope. Here in verse 2 of chapter 1, also in chapter 3, verse 7. It speaks of Christ's coming, and he says, So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Yes, eternal life is something we enjoy now, but eternal life is more a future certainty than it is a present reality. Eternal life is more a future certainty than it is a present reality. Look there in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Let me read from verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians are those who wait. We are marked by a waiting. Now, not an idle waiting, not a waiting that you may involve yourself in, uh, at, at, at Safeway or at Target or at the DMV. No, 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 that, that's idle waiting. It's the waiting of the, the wise man who goes to the doctor and brings a book and busies himself, right? It's the waiting of a child who, who's waiting for their grandparents to visit this evening, but they give themselves to their homework right now. And every once in a while, they look out the window because they, they're waiting for grandma and grandpa to, to visit. This is the Christian life. We give ourselves to good works, we tend to our families and our jobs, but we are waiting for the blessed hope. Titus 2, verse 13. I think it's Don Carson who said, the Christian faith is by its very nature and structure a forward-looking faith. A forward-looking faith. We are those who have hope. Hope. And friends, we don't use hope in the Bible. The Bible doesn't use the word hope like we use the word hope. We hope that the pollen will be washed away. We, we hope that there won't be turbulence on the flight. We, we hope that the unemployment would be banished from our family. We hope 
that the doctor's diagnosis will not be dire. We don't have control over those things, although we we wish that these things would uh, turn out a certain way in the future. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it speaks of a certain future. A certain future. Look there in chapter 1, verse 2, how Paul describes God. What's your God-like Christian? Look there in verse 2. He's a God who never lies. A God who never lies. I, I don't know what, what burdens you bring into, into this place and what you'll carry with as you leave the door later on. But I want to assure you that if you are in Christ, you have a hope that dwarfs all the suffering we may have in this life. Amen. And I don't say that lightly. I live in a country where crime is rampant. The unemployment rate is, un- is officially at 25%. It's probably closer to 40%. Many of our people are depressed, cynical about the future. But I have the regular privilege of reminding them that in the Scriptures, because of God's grace, as we are found in Christ, our future looks bright amazingly bright. Christian, whatever you're going to take away from this morning's study of God's Word, why don't you take away that short little phrase in verse 2. You have a God who never lies and who has promised you eternal life. Now, in some measure, and in its fullness in the world to come. On what is our faith set? It is, f- it is set on our future hope. If you ever come and visit South Africa, I would encourage you to go and visit the Cape. Johannesburg is where we are, and it's a lovely city, better weather than the Cape, but Cape Town is beautiful. One thing I uh, uh, often forget about the Cape when I go and visit is the wind howls in the Cape. It blows terribly in there, uh, on the peninsula particularly. And the trees around the Cape Peninsula are particularly bent. Because of the wind. That's the shape of the trees on the Cape Peninsula. They are bent. What do Christian trees look like? Well, they're grounded in God's Word. They have the fruits of godliness, but they bent forward towards this future hope. You know, recently, uh, not recently, but five years ago, our daughter Mary was just born. She came with us to a wedding in the Cape. Uh, And the man who preached at the wedding is a dear brother, uh, Roger Palmer. He's a pastor now in... Uh, Perth, Australia. He's a man who's played a huge role in my own life. It was a sweet time to watch him uh, preach at a wedding, even as he preached at Kate and my wedding years ago. That Saturday night, we went out for supper, myself and some friends with Roger Palmer. Uh, And just as I uh, said goodbye to him one last time, I haven't seen him since, Roger Palmer, in his wry sense of humor, said to me, Gus, now you keep going. You keep going on the Christian life. And remember, the first 80 years, they're always the hardest. <laughs> it's true though, isn't it? No matter how difficult this world is, and it is hard. Jesus didn't mince his words when he spoke of this world being a world in which we walk on a narrow path. A path that's often lonely and dark. But praise God, it's only part of the journey. Because the first 80 years, they are the hardest. But praise God, we have a great and brilliant future to look forward to. 
What is a flourishing faith? It's a faith that's rooted in God's word, a faith that bears the fruit of godliness, and a faith that looks forward to this glorious hope. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your word that nurtures us, your word that spurs us on. We do pray, Lord, that we would be those who would be found on the last day with a faith that flourishes. We pray that our faith would flourish even in this coming week. Help us by your spirit to be not just those who hear your word, but those who put it into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.